Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A central theological and philosophical problem facing Christians is the question, how could a merciful God damn people to hell? It is tempting to solve this issue by developing an image of God that leaves out mercy or an understanding of Christian doctrine that rejects the concept of hell. In his new book, Hell and the Mercy of God, published in 2017 by Catholic University of America Press, Dr. Adrian Reimers takes up this challenge. In this thought-provoking work, Reimers does not simply seek to resolve this apparent contradiction, but reveals the connections between God's mercy and hell while embracing the ambiguity of human existence. Philosophers and theologians in particular will find this work useful, but it's so clear that students, and even historians like myself, will be able to understand it. I hope you will enjoy the interview, and you'll go out and read Hell and the Mercy of God. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Adrian Reimers about his new book, Hell and the Mercy of God. Uh, hello, Adrian. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you. So, um, just as we usually begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yes. I am, uh, first of all, I teach philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I have done so for, what, 16 years now. I'm uh, married, four children, and five grandchildren. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm on the other side of 70, which bespeaks old age, although I don't actually feel that too much. Well, And could you tell us a little bit about your education? Yeah, I, I got a bachelor's degree in mathematics way back in the 60s at, here at Notre Dame. Uh, then I got a master's degree in the early 70s, shortly after we got married. Uh, I wound up actually getting my doctoral degree in uh, Liechtenstein at the Internationale Academy for Philosophie in Liechtenstein, uh, which turned out was um, it was rather important because uh, there I was introduced to the thought of Carl uh, Wojtyla, subsequently John Paul II. Um, I had the, the 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 great advantage there was that I ran into uh, Professor Rocco Buttiglioni, who became my dissertation advisor. And uh, Rocco was a personal friend of John Paul II. And um, so he introduced me to him and, and got me into following uh, John Paul's uh, thought. So, and that's, that's where I wound up getting my doctoral degree. Oh, excellent, excellent. And so, how did you come to choose to pick to, to write on this topic of hell and the mercy of God? Well, actually, I explained this in the, in, in the introduction to the book. I went to Catholic school from very, my whole life I went to Catholic schools, okay? Uh, and, of course, hell was important. At first, when you're a kid, you learn the basics, you know, be good, say your prayers, don't commit mortal sins, and... You go to heaven, um, but uh, commit sins, you go to hell. Uh, but gradually, you know, you, you start thinking about that and what does that really mean? And eventually, as you grow older, uh, the simplistic version that I just outlined, kind of the kid's version, really isn't satisfying. And particularly, you get important questions like, why is it that good people, nice people go to hell? Or do they? Um what really is it that happens in hell? Uh, presumably when you, die, when you die, your soul lives on. Okay, well, how does a soul get burned up by a fire, for example? Um, so the question is always kind of in the back of my mind. I've read Dante's Inferno a couple of times um, and thought about it. And, of course, doing my other stuff. You know, from time to time, I just think back on the question of what, where do we go what happens after we die? I, and so it's been a lifelong question. I started thinking about how would I answer my students, you know, uh, about questions about, you know, 
why do people go to hell? How can a good God send people to hell? And it just seemed to me that I'm at an age where, looking back, I should try to come up with some kind of an answer. I'm a philosopher, so I should be able to come up with some kind of decent answer to this, uh, even if I'm not a theological expert. So that that was, it's basically, you could say, uh, the result of a lifetime reflection, as it were, pulling things together. Yeah, it's, in a way, it's an old man's book, but it's written. <laughs> I'm thinking of the young people, actually, when I write it. So... Right. Well, it does. I mean, and that's one thing I like about this work is that you communicate, you know, not only in a sense knowledge, but the wisdom you've gained um, in a very approachable way. Thank you. So so this is something I think that for our listeners, uh, for, for those who listen often to my interviews, you know, I'm a historian, not a philosopher or a theologian. Uh, and I can understand a, a good amount of this book, not all of it. Um, but that was my fault, not the author's. So excellent. So you've told us a little bit about how you came to write the book, the main idea. And your book contains a prologue, and you talk about this person named Dismas. So I wonder if you could tell us, who is Dismas, and what role does he play in your book? Okay, Dismas, it's, it's the name that has been given to the good thief on, on Calvary with Jesus. I find it worthwhile. In a way, I think if you know the story of Dismas, you know everything you need to know about hell and the mercy of God. He's hanging there on the cross. Uh, he's been condemned uh, by the Romans, presumably for crimes he's done. Now, the scripture said he was a lawbreaker, a criminal of some sort. His um, buddy starts making fun of Jesus. You know, if you're the Christ, why don't you come down from that cross and save yourself and save us too? And um, Dismas does something you know, rather kind. He's basically lay off. Uh, we're getting punished for stuff we did. This is the penalty you get for doing, you know, crossing the Romans, as it were. But this man did nothing wrong, so leave him alone. And then he turns to Jesus, or he addresses Jesus, and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know what he was thinking of. Did he really think Jesus was going to rise from the dead, that Jesus was going to come into a kingdom? But whatever was going on in his mind, whatever he was trying to say, he was respectful of Jesus. He showed some mercy to Jesus by, you know, telling his friend to back off. And then he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, oh, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I don't think the guy knew what to make of that necessarily, but after the Romans broke his legs and he died, uh, well, Jesus said, you're going to be with me in paradise. And there he was. In a way, he had blown his whole life, and at the very last second, yes, mercy of God, as mercy of Christ, and he's in paradise. So I think that uh, certainly the impression that I got in my early days back in Catholic grade school was that I got to do a lot of stuff to uh, earn my way into heaven, and he didn't earn his way into heaven. So it, it's, it's really a matter of pure mercy. Turn to Jesus and he will give you your salvation. Excellent. And it, it's interesting to me because, I mean, this is the, the prologue. You start off with Dismas and this wonderful reflection on him and on this scene where, where he, that you just described. And then it's fascinating to me because in the first chapter of your book is the fall of Satan. And, and that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. So I wonder, who is Satan then? And why is he so important in understanding God's mercy? Of course, Satan, according to to theologians going back almost very early in Christianity, was one of the angels. Uh, He is identified with Lucifer in the the book of Isaiah. Angels are pure spirits. They are, that is, they are not embodied. So the reality of being an angel is different than being the reality of human beings. But they're intelligent and they have will. Um, Who is Satan? And why is he important in understanding God's mercy? So he was a brilliant angel. Traditionally, he's been thought of as perhaps the most brilliant of the angels, the most beautiful. And he turned against God. Now, how that happened, uh, we don't really know. Angels don't live in time. They are, you know, time is, is about bodiliness. But his decision, which is apparently kind of immediately upon his being created, was to choose his 
happiness, the meaning for himself, not from God. He, as it were, did not turn to God for that, but he turned to his own lights. Um, he, you know, this is hard to, to compare with our experience because we live in time. We make up our minds over time. We do things by trial and angel, error. If you're an angel, in a sense, you know everything at once and you make your decisions at once. So he doesn't have time to reconsider. Is this the right, the right choice that I'm making? Because he has everything, all his knowledge right there. And he chose that he would be Lord of his life and the goal of his life, the center of his own life rather than God. So he turned away from, as it were, God's outstretched hand. And so from there on was uh, deprived of the vision of God, turned to God, and, you know, the, the reward, as it were, is the vision of God. But he turned away. In a way, he liked the vision of himself better. He thought that that would be better. So that's the ultimate rebellion against God. He will be the God, I guess, in his own existence. And that's pertinent to us. But that's pertinent to the question of mercy because he, in fact, turned away from the source of mercy. We can't get into God's presence. We can't see the vision of God unless God offers it to us. Okay. Um, and then we have to respond positively. He's the one, the spiritual being, who responded negatively. I'll do it myself. Is that getting close to what you were looking for? Oh, no, exactly. No, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, and so what happens then, in a sense, is that so you have this fall um, that occurs, bef in a sense, before time almost, it would seem. Because you said they, the uh, angels or spirits, they exist outside of time. Right. So then, um, so this is taking us, and this is one thing for our listeners I really like about this book is we're kind of going step by step. I mean, this is kind of difficult because at first you, you may be saying, well, well what, what about, why are we talking about Satan? How does that get us to why there's a hell for human beings? And you start to make that connection. Then, you, you know, you've told us who Satan is, the, the, how he's rejected God's mercy and how that's kind of cast him, uh, you know, pushed him out. In chapter two, original sin in the fall, you now start to, to kind of tie this in uh, to explain now how Satan's fall um, can starts to kind of lead to this idea of hell for human beings. So in the second chapter, could you tell us a little bit more? Um, what is the relationship like between Satan and his angels on one side and human beings on the other? Yeah. Well, like, like angels, we are spiritual beings, too. We're humans. Um, we have bodies. But by, by, spiritual beings, by spiritual beings, I mean that we, too, live or truth and goodness, even though we may not realize it, even though we may not may even try to deny it. We, in fact, are always concerned about truth and goodness. That cheese in the fridge, is that still good? You know, <laughs> the, uh, you know, Sam, the mechanic, tells you that your engine block is cracked. And your first question, is that really true? And you might even go to another mechanic. Uh, we, we live concerned, constantly concerned with truth and goodness, and especially with the ultimate truth and the ultimate good just like angels. Uh, but of course, we live, do this all in a bodily way. We don't learn things instantly as an angel would. And we don't make our mic up our minds instantly as an angel could. So, so God created human beings. This is represented in, in the book of Genesis, you know, chapters two and three, uh, the creation of the first man and woman, and then the fall at the tree. Now, however you want to take that, and, you know, this is pretty clearly a myth, a mythical description, uh, it's to reveal a, a, a real truth. So if, if human beings, in other words, if the human race started in South Africa 100,000 years ago, or most, it wasn't, yeah, whatever it is, back then, um, the first human beings knew of God and knew of his, you know, his love, of all the goodness he had, and they were Satan. The, the scripture represents Satan as coming in the form of a serpent. The serpent says to them, says first to Eve, oh, eat the fruit. And she says, well, no, God said we shouldn't. Well, that's because he's holding out on you. 
if you eat the fruit, you're going to be wise like God, knowing good and evil. Um, and he doesn't want that. So he put plants the seed of mistrust. Why? Because if Satan is going to be God, which in his view he should be, he should be ruling the universe, or at least a large chunk of it, then he needs followers. That's the way I see it anyway. So he tempts her. She thinks, she buys the lie. Uh, she doubts the gift that God has been giving her and Adam. Uh, so she she takes the fruit and she eats it and gives it to her husband who doesn't even ask, Eve, do you think this is a good idea? No, he just takes it and eats it. Just, I've always been amused by that. Right. <laughs> the only one who does any thinking is the woman. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, he seduces her, or both of them really, I think into mistrusting God. In a way, what he does, I can think through good and evil myself. I can be have the wisdom to decide what is good and what is evil, rather than trusting in God, who incidentally has given us this marvelous garden and this world to live in, and a beautiful partner for me here. It's Satan's plot, as it were. Right, so his kind of continuous desire to want to be like God, like he, 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 he looks to himself initially um, and rejects God's mercy, and then now he wants to have followers um, so he can be like God in that sense, to receive what, what only God should get. Yes, that's right. And actually, um, when I think about Satan, I find it also helpful to think about um, kind of his big dramatic followers on Earth. Mostly I think about Joseph Stalin. Uh, Stalin was the author of all truth, the arbiter of all good in the Soviet Union. He really was God. Actually, Solzhenitsyn, in one of his novels in the first circle, even um, presents Stalin as wondering, almost asking God, why do you put up with your enemies when you could easily crush them? Uh, you know, I, Stalin, who am God of at least the Soviet Union, would <laughs> certainly not allow what you allow. That's the implicit thing that he tells. Um, so I, in a way, I'm, my image of Satan is borrowed from Joseph Stalin. How's that? But no, that sounds like a good, <laughs> a good a person as any in history to, to make that comparison. Um, I'm always amazed at, at I mean, at Stalin. Um, and that, in a sense, that brings us then to your, your third chapter, um, Judgment and the Mystery of Evil. And this is a very, very interesting chapter, and there's many questions that I, I could ask about it um, because it is so far-reaching and so, so, so kind of broadly conceived. But the thing that caught me the most, and this may be because um, I'm a specialist in Asian Christianity, so I have to study Confucianism, um, is this issue of vice and virtue. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit more about what are vice and virtue, and what do they have to do with um, God's judgment and the ultimate fate of a human soul, especially in terms of mercy? Right. Well, what do vice and virtue have to do with it? We, we human beings who live in the body have to discover the truth bodily, and live out goodness bodily, which means often, well, truth, the search for truth always involves a lot of error. I mean, you know that, you're a scholar. As children, we make mistakes, and then even as advanced scholars, we get things wrong. Uh, and likewise, in our search for what is good, we have to grow in our understanding of that. And we have to try to attain goodness. Aristotle talked about this, about the importance of developing virtues. If you don't have virtue, he said, you can't live a good and noble life. The vicious man, a man who's got vices, is going to be too self-indulgent. So he's going to wind up getting drunk. He's going to overeat. He's going to be a glutton, perhaps. Or he, giving rein to his, his temper, will um, be imprudent in how he relates with others. Probably unjust. Uh, the hothead uh, gets himself into trouble. Alexander Hamilton was really smart. He did a lot of great and wonderful things, but he could not say no to the duel because his honor was at stake. Um, I don't think Aristotle would have approved of that particular thing. You know, um, so we have to have virtues. And the more virtuous we become, uh, the better off we are just in this life. If you want to be a citizen of Athens, have a good life, be virtuous. Well, 
That's all true. But, of course, the question is there is a higher good uh, that we are called to, which is uh, ultimately life with God. God wants us for himself to be with him, which is even better than living as an honorable city in uh, ancient Athens, which is kind of Aristotle's ideal. We need to be the best we can, but of course, this is the best we can in a different, it's in relation to God, the ultimate perfect good. So if we, in a sense, if we're virtuous, we don't really need mercy. Um, and if we're, but if we're not virtuous, we don't really deserve it. So how does that, that, how does that work then with this whole concept of God's mercy? But then God also, God is merciful, but also wants us to be good. Okay, I think that, I'm not sure that I would agree that without uh, virtue, we wouldn't need mercy. Actually, I think we do, because our end, our purpose is not simply to be good citizens. Our goal in life is to be in union with God. Uh, now, when we get to the judgment scene, the king will invite all those on his left to come into uh, his, the place prepared for you by the, your father. But it is really into a community, into the city of God, to use Augustine's phrase. Um, so virtue is important, but it that's only what we can do. Uh, virtue is formed by love, uh, which means that it has ultimately be, to be directed toward the perfect object of love. Um, we know, actually, that the Satan, Satan's um, followers, we could say, um, can be virtuous too. There's a certain virtue that is practiced. Uh, criminals can be very clever in committing their crimes. I sometimes ask, ask myself, is it really right? Should I like applaud Paul Newman and Robert Redford for the pulling off the sting because they were robbing a man of half a million dollars? But, um, you know, we can admire their cleverness and we can have to acknowledge that some very terrible people have been very brave. Uh, so what makes virtuous virtue, what, what makes virtues in a way good is their ultimate direction. One can be very courageous and very clever in the service of evil. How's that? I think so. Uh, virtue is not enough. Well, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. So we still would need mercy, even if we're virtuous. Yes. Actually, you, th you think of people like St. Francis and St. Um, Ignatius of Loyola, uh, both of whom were, uh, they loved the soldiering life. They admired soldiers. And both of them, in one way or another, Ignatius got hit by a cannonball, certainly change, <laughs> help to sober his mind. But both of them realized that it is better to serve the greatest king, uh, which would be Christ, than to serve some earthly prince. So it's like, fine, it's great to be a hero serving you know, such and such a prince in, in Italy or, or Spain. To serve Christ, that's even greater. And, we, and I can do that, so I ought to change my allegiance, as it were. And I think that's that's kind of the perfect segue into your next chapter, chapter four, Resurrection, the Final Judgment, in which you talk a lot about idolatry. And idolatry, that's always one thing I, I've really struggled to kind of understand. Why is idolatry something that's so often condemned um, uh, from a, a Christian perspective? So could you tell us um, what is idolatry and why is that problematic? OK, well, idolatry was worship is, of course, worship of a false god. And it is one thing, it's a constantly recurring theme in the, in the Old Testament. It's like, you know, they no sooner cross the Red Sea, just about, or they get at least to Mount Sinai, and already they're finding false gods that they can worship, make the calf of gold, and they get into the Promised Land, and they're worshiping the local gods. God is, you know, kind of by definition the supreme being. Um, and he's also in Christian and Jew Jewish revelation, the one who is our Lord and King. But the problem with the Israelites was pretty much throughout their history, at least up to the exile, they kept turning to look at other gods. And gods 
if we think about them the way they understood them, gods could do stuff for us, okay? Uh, you're going on a sea voyage. You don't want Poseidon to be mad at you because he might kick up a storm uh, and sink your ship. So you offer a sacrifice to Poseidon, and it better be the right one. Otherwise, you get sunk. Um, yeah, and you're planting your crops. You want to offer sacrifices to the god of fertility. you got to get it right. Um, we now know in this, in the modern era, uh, that these gods don't exist. Uh, you know, we, we, we know what causes storms. We know what a lot more about the fertility of the soil and so on. But um, we can still look to other things uh, to be our highest values in life, our highest good, um, what we what we direct our attention to and what we serve. Um, oh, yeah. I just flipped open the book, and actually I got right here to Karl Marx talks about money. Money is really interesting. He writes, this is from the Communist Manifesto. He writes that the bourgeoisie has stripped of its hail, halo, Every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its pay, paid wage laborers. Uh, and he goes on. He reduces everything to mere money relations. Well, there's a lot of truth to what Marx wrote. I was, for a while, uh, before I came here to Notre Dame to teach, I was working for a small symphony orchestra and... One of the board members, I was, I was basically the manager, general manager. One of the, mem one of the board members, a, a businessman, referred to the music director, that is the conductor, as the, quote, hired help. Well, <laughs> brutal insult. Uh, the right. director never forgave him for that. I mean, and of course, he was an artist. You know, what the heck? I'm an artist here. I am not the hired help. Uh, well, from one perspective, I suppose you, which is the perspective Marx is referring to, he is money buys everything. We can fire you, Mr. Music Director, and we can hire another one, uh, maybe even for cheaper, as it were. Uh, the great power with money, the great problem with money is that it has immense power, and we always are tempted, at least, to bow to it. Um, you know, Christ himself says you can't serve both God and mammon. Now, that's interesting because I serve God, okay, I worship him, I pray, I go to, to, to mass, other services, I try to do what he wants. So how do I serve money? Well, money can rule my life. It can be the dominant thing. I can trust money more than I trust in God. I could, you could say that. So money be, really does become an idol. Uh, or if you think of the alcoholic, um, and alcoholism, of course, is very complex. Uh, I don't believe that it is simply a disease. Uh, it's something that a person needs help with. You know, I, yeah, I, yeah. It is. It is the, the bottle is an is an idol, and one of the really difficult things about the bottle is, but for the alcoholic, is that he's got to have bottles planted all over the house. Uh, he can never be, or she can never be, uh, too far away from the next drink. The bottle rules. Uh, that's why spouses of alcoholics have to learn not to, it, there comes a point where you just simply can't help. You know, I am not going to call your boss and tell him you're sick. You call him yourself. Uh, when you know, she has had pull him off the front lawn where he's passed out. Uh, it's either me or that bottle. We talk about it as a powerful thing. Um, now, alcohol, well, alcohol is actually an all sin or very complex. Um, but it becomes a real idol with real power. I don't know. I mean, one could go on and on. Um, so, so could you tell us then how does this um, this kind of sin of idolatry, how does it connect to the final judgment? Did I say something about that in the book? That's guess my first question. I must have. Okay. Oh, I think so. Yeah, in chapter four. In chapter four? Yeah. 
see if I can find it. I guess I was just thinking, how does how is it that idolatry would lead you to hell, mm-hmm. despite God's mercy? And I'm especially thinking in this chapter, this is where you talk about Michelangelo's fresco of the Last Judgment. Right, right. Um, the the problem with idolatry is that only God is merciful. The idol is always merciless. Um, so we have these, yeah, we have these people, we, 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 you can see, of course, you know. Okay, in Matthew 25, the, the king comes at the final judgment, and he says to those on his right, uh, come, be blessed of my father, into the place prepared, uh, you know, the palace is preferred, prepared for you by my father. And then uh, to those on the left, he says, uh, out of my sight, go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, idols are merciless. The people who, well, first of all, we know that the people who were cast out of his sight were those who saw Christ when he was hungry, thirsty, in jail, and so on, and did nothing for him. Uh, I, idols are merciless. Uh, idols don't care. Um, we think of Scrooge. Scrooge, you know, in, the, in his earlier life, Chris, the, most, the, the ghost of Christmas past shows him this, uh, how he was in love with a wonderful young woman and how, for the sake of money, his heart toward her grew cold. Uh, that's sort of like it. Or we could look at the, the, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Lazar, the rich man doesn't mistreat Lazarus. This is in the Gospel of Luke. But he ignores him. His heart is cold toward him. Uh, he has no mercy toward him. Uh, he saw the, the, the Lazarus lying there without food, but he wouldn't even share the left, his leftovers with him. Uh, idols are merciless. Money will say, you can be charitable after I have you've met my demands. The, the bottle can say that after you've met my demands. But also, oh, I mean, we can get so wrapped up in our work that, frankly, we ignore our children sometimes. Right. Um, only God is merciful. Now, the thing about God is that even when we screw up and even when we turn away from him uh, and do what he certainly would not want, he'll always welcome us back. There's a great episode in uh, Brideshead Revisited. I can't remember the woman's name, but she's kind of the main character. She's one of the uh, part of the aristocratic, fam- aristocratic family and the the artist, who the author, or I should say the primary voice in the novel, uh, becomes her lover. And the two of them carry on for quite a while as an unmarried, um, as unmarried lovers. Um, and finally, she tells him, they have, she has to go. She cannot be with him any longer. She loves him very much. She really wants him, but she can't do it any longer. And she makes a very interesting comment. She says, as long as I am with you, I know I have turned away from him, meaning Christ. She says, I can't do that because as long as, you know, it's either you or him. I have to choose him. I know that if I choose him, I will be bad. That is, she will probably find other short-term lovers and do other things that are wrong. But he'll always welcome me back. But if I choose you to stay with you, knowing that I'm choosing against him, I may never have him. It's rather interesting. So she knows she can count on forgiveness, but she has to make her choice too. And that's not, it, it, she's not going to stay in this uh, long-term adulterous relationship, which is this pretty much the center of her life at that point in the book. Well, excellent. Well, thank you. That's very helpful in, in understanding that. So I wonder that if, if we move on to chapter five, which is entitled The Mystery of Iniquity, if you could tell us what do you, what do you, does that term mean? And you return to this image of the final judgment again in that chapter. Could you tell us what it has to do with the final judgment? Okay. Well, the, first of all, the mystery is why do we do wrong things? Uh, why do people do evil? Um, you know, and there's, like Plato ultimately winds up ascribing it to ignorance. 
We do evil because we don't know what, what is good. Now, that's not entirely an adequate answer. It's like if we had everybody educated, then we would all be good. But we know that it's not entirely true, certainly. We can blame evil on external factors like upbringing, um, but poverty, misfortune. And to a certain extent, like if you can point to an abusive husband and father, well, the odds are very strong that he himself was raised by an abusive father. On the other hand, if you point to the son of an abusive father, you have no way of knowing whether he himself will be an abuser. I could go on with examples like that. One slogan is, there are no bad people, just bad incentives, and it just doesn't seem to work. It turns out that people can deliberately choose to be wicked, and we can't entirely make sense of it. Why do they do evil? Why does a person turn against good? So that's, that's the great mystery, and it's something, actually it's something that we philosophers never have gotten our hands around. We try answers, starting with, 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 um, with uh, Plato, really, or with Socrates. Uh, we can't quite make sense of it. Yeah, in uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov leaves his home. This is the opening scene in the book. And Dostoevsky gives him walking from his crummy uh, flat to the place of his murder. Uh, and on the way, he is really consumed with thinking through not only how he should do this. Does anybody see me? You know, am I being observed? I better hide my tracks, but there's also, maybe I shouldn't even do this. He thinks that if he, he can commit a murder, then he can steal the money and make a better world with this old pawnbroker's money. So he doesn't, so he goes to the pawnbroker's apartment, and um, it isn't almost until the last moment that he finally um picks up the axe and, and strikes her and kills her. Then, to his horror, he notices that the, I guess we could say, mentally deficient girl who lives with her, Liza Vita, she has suddenly and unexpectedly appeared. So Raskolnikov kills her. Uh, then he wrestles with that. He did it. He's the criminal. Uh, he is the murderer. But it wasn't he never completed all his thoughts. That's really peculiar. It wasn't as though he had thought it through perfectly and that the, the outcome of all his thinking was a murder. It was that he wrestled with his thoughts and finally picked up the ax and killed her. That's a mystery, isn't it? Why do we do that? We do nice people. Good people, it seems. Turn to that. Turn to evil. Why do we do what? You know, what, so Satan turned, turned against God in an instant, and it transformed him. And suddenly, turn against God, picking up the axe and killing the old woman. Or Michael Corleone gets the gun out of the bathroom and goes out, and he's—you can st- see in the film—he's actually trembling as he does this. Uh, so lots of the Turk is yammering away in Italian at the table, and finally Michael stands up and shoots him in the crooked cop, and it transforms his life. And so why would then, when we have... Oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, I'm that sad. So if, if, we're, if we're complex, if, we, if human choice is complex in this way, how is it that some people would merit God's mercy um, where others would not and would, would go to hell? Well, well, I think that goes back to Dismas. Uh, really. It's not, first of all, nobody merits God's mercy. Um, it, it's offered to you. I think, so it comes down to, will you accept his mercy? Uh, now, sometimes one can get to the point where, you know, you, you've outrun. You can't, you can't ever presume that tomorrow God will show me his mercy. Therefore, I should, can do what I want today. I can be merciless today. Uh, it's... Rather, that God's, God's hand is always out there. We can recognize it or we can turn away from it. There can be the offer of mercy 
let me get a bit personal. Uh, as I said, I'm past 70 now. And I find that as I look back on my life, there were all sorts of screw ups. You know, I can think of relationships I've damaged, people I've hurt, opportunities to do something good that I passed up on, opportunities to do something bad that I didn't pass up on. And in a way, it's almost as though I can see that there was mercy in my life. I didn't always remember it, recognize it. Sometimes, you know, the biggest mercy is to have things turn out badly, uh, which, you know, you lose your temper at a friend and he's not your friend anymore. Um, and that's a good lesson and it helps pull you back to a, a better attitude toward people. Um, but we can't. So the important thing is to respond to his mercy when he offers it, um, when there's an opportunity to be merciful. One can, though, continually turn away from it. Uh, one can deliberately choose not to be merciful himself. And in that way, you know, what else is God going to do? What's Christ going to do? You won't, you won't be merciful. That's kind of the condition. You won't join me in, in my mercy. Then you got to go. Is that at all an intelligible kind of response? Oh, no, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So it's not, like you said, it's not something that's merited. It's something that's freely offered, but it's ultimately our free choice. Right. Whether to accept it or not. And that actually, if if it's okay, I want to skip ahead because that, that brings us to something in Chapter 7 that, that, that you talk a little bit about in Chapter 7 somewhere else. I'm going to read from the book um, because you identify this paradox at the beginning of Chapter 7. And you say, here is a great paradox you know, on page 179. Yeah. The damned are not treated unjustly. They choose to turn from God, and so they are cast out from his presence. And yet if Michelangelo is right, and this is referring to the Last Judgment, and our Lord's words give us reason to believe he is, they are surprised and dismayed by their fate. So this is kind of a paradox, because we've been talking about how this idea you, you can choose to accept or reject God's mercy, but if you make that choice, why would people be surprised? Uh, so what – oh, go on. Yeah, because you don't know – in a way, you don't know what it entails. Um, you get involved in the evil. You tell his story. You believe his story and Satan's. And you think it's going to be good. You wind up with consequences that you hadn't expected. Now, let's, Adam and Eve, you know, believe the devil. Okay, fine. Um, and so God says, well, then you can't be here in my garden anymore. So they're cast out of the garden. And it turns out that work becomes very, very hard. You know, you'll work, you'll, you'll, you'll grow your crops by the sweat of your brow. Uh, the woman's urging will be toward her husband. Uh, and for his part, he will dominate over it. You can imagine, uh, as they have just done this thing, they ate the, the fruit, but then he is blaming her. God says, you ate the fruit? Why? Well, the woman you put here with me, she, made, she gave it to me and I ate it. And the woman passes it off on the snake. Then as they leave the garden, you can try to imagine the conversation, um, the recriminations back and forth. They cover themselves up because they're, they realize they're naked, and he is probably desirous of her, but she's not going to give him what he wants, at least not for a while, because, frankly, they're miserable right now. Uh, they never bargained for this, but in a way they did. Of course, they mistrusted God's love. Or you can think of the, you know, the young man who uh, maybe gets seduced into joining the mob. Uh, join the mob, you got money in your pocket. Those guys always got money in their pocket. They got respect. Uh, they got women whenever they want them. Uh, they got, what you know, what's not to want? Uh, you'd be a fool to pass up the opportunity. Well, you get into the mob and very quickly you discover that your life is not your own, that in fact you are not treated with respect within it, uh, you're treated with contempt. You're doing things that uh, now are dangerous, uh, that you used to find disgraceful or disgusting. 
Uh, you have to do things that are worse and worse. So I think if we look at what happens when you accept a satanic offer, you thought you would be happy. You, you're getting, in a sense, what you asked for. And it's not nearly as good as you thought. In fact, it's, um, it's pretty bad. And so ultimately, you've decided, as it were, by choosing against mercy, against God, you wind up in Satan's kingdom. He doesn't appreciate all you did for it. You chose him. He's going to be my Lord, but you're in his kingdom. And frankly, he, he has nothing but contempt for you because, of course, the way Satan works is contempt. Well, and that's one thing I, I like that you did in this book was you put, especially in chapter six, you, you differentiate these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And in a sense, we choose, um, however much consciously we choose, but we choose which one we're going to be a part of. Right. Um, and of course, like you said earlier, one is the kingdom of idolatry versus merciless. And the other is God's kingdom, which is full of mercy. Yes. Yeah, I don't think. In a sense, you can never satisfy Satan. You know, any, everybody close to Stalin wound up sent off to the camps or murdered by him. Uh, and that's the kind of personality we're dealing with. Somehow you got what you want, but it wasn't what you expected. Or at the opening of the early in the what lion, the witch in the wardrobe, the kid was at Edmund, right? He, he, right. He gets seduced by the Turkish delight, which the queen gives him. And then for the rest of the book, he never gets any more Turkish delight. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. He has to betray his brother and sisters. He's, he's on the side of evil. She treats him with contempt. And he, there's no more Turkish delight. So we're, we're, we're running a little bit low on time. So I wonder if I, I, I want to skip ahead just to chapter eight, the fullness of good, because this is where you deal with the issue of theodicy, of, of how you de we deal with God being all good and all powerful and all-knowing, but they're still being suffering in the world. So how would you deal theologically or philosophically with the problem of God's goodness and human suffering? Yeah, I, th I think the, the fundamental principle for me is that God is the perfect good, and all good comes from God. With Thomas Aquinas' point, you know, makes that argument. So what do I make of it in my life? Well, it means that ultimately I don't know completely and thoroughly what good means. I have a pretty good idea um, of what a lot of, you know, my wife's love, that's good. Okay. Um, there are things I, what we know about goodness in this life is only an approximation. Uh, the fullness of good is found only in God. Uh, therefore, we don't understand uh, what is really good and what is uh, not completely. And we don't quite recognize what is really evil. If, uh, if Dismas had not been arrested by the Romans and condemned and put on that cross on the hill on Golgotha, he would never have asked Jesus, probably, would never have asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Uh, it turns out that that was really salvation for him. And, of course, if you know much about crucifixion, you know that's a, a horrible way to die. It really, really, it's a way of torturing somebody to death. But for him, that was good because he got to know God. Um, John, or no, excuse me, John Stuart Mill <clears throat> writes in his Utilitarianism, uh, it's a very seductive book. He says that uh, the principle is govern, should govern all our behavior is the principle of happiness, the greatest happiness principle, um, happiness being pleasure in the absence of pain. And he goes on it and says, look, this is – some people say this is godless, but actually it is very much in a tune with, uh, with God because God wants all his creatures to be happy. And therefore, our principle, greatest happiness principle, is a very godly principle. Well, it's true that God <clears throat> wants all his creatures to be happy, but not apparently in this life. Um, our fullness of happiness is only with him. 
in this life we can have moments and snatches and glimpses of happiness. But like St. Augustine says, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. So we are sinful, imperfect beings, and we live in a, it's a beautiful world, but it also, the way the planet is built, you've got tectonic plates floating on lava, and every now and then we get uh, earthquakes and tsunamis and stuff like that which cause harm. You know, we have, we have to have weather, but do we, I guess there's right now this uh, massive hurricane uh, aiming for Texas, and there's going to be a lot of suffering and property damage, I'm sure, down there. So, uh, but maybe the highest good isn't to have one's home completely safe and sound down in Houston or Galveston. Maybe there's a higher good that God wants you to find. Um, there is, actually. This is one of those things we philosophers don't do well with. We won't ever know the answer, I think, until we're looking at truth and goodness in the face, which would be God. Theodicy falls short. Well, excellent. Well, that was, I think that's a great way to conclude um, you know, what's really an informative and thought-provoking work and one that I enjoyed. And there's a lot for our listeners. There's a lot more to this than what we were able to talk about. So if you found this intriguing, I hope you'll have a look at it because it is um, Adrian does a, a wonderful job of explaining all these things. Certainly has helped me to kind of understand these issues a little bit more. Um, Adrian, we've taken a lot of, of your time, but if I could just take a little bit more and ask you our traditional New Book Network's question, what are you working on now? Ah, well, I'm going back. Uh, my, my focus of my work is still on uh, the thought of Carl Wojtyla slash John Paul II. Uh, I'm working on a book basically relating his thought on the theology of the body to uh, Pope Paul VI encyclical Humanae Vitae, in which uh, Paul VI famously declared uh, the use of contraceptives to be morally wrong. Uh, how does John Paul II's thought relate to what uh, what Paul VI had written in that encyclical? So that's the current project. Well, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> well, it is. Well, excellent. Well, thank you again for giving us so much of your time and writing this fascinating book. Oh, sure. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate your, in, your interviewing me. Well, thank you so much. You have a good day. You too. Thanks a lot. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.